crazy. I read something very cool today. I need that. I've been having such a case of the Mondays. It is absolutely insane. Oh, you're going to really like this. Okay, Ooh. so our podcast analytics email for the day came in. Mm-hmm. 550 people listened to our pod today. That's like the report of the day. Oh, my God. <laughs> and this is something we actually get messages about, not this in particular, but very early on in our podcast, we talked about if we got 300 listeners, I think that was the number we gave ourselves, <laughs> <laughs> we would get fancy whiskey, which, by the way, the um, old Rip Van Winkle whiskey, was mm -hmm. that what it was called? You have yeah. to get like on waiting lists to get it. Like, there's no way. Yes, unfortunately, we do have a lot more listeners now, but we don't have a lot more money, like, as individuals. <laughs> <laughs> Not enough money to get us that whiskey. Right. For sure. Or to get pull the right strings to get on the right lists. Like, my sister's friend got a bottle of it through his state lottery. <laughs> yeah. Okay, sure. Yeah, so we need a comparable gift to ourselves, I guess. We'll take suggestions. Yeah. If 550 of you would write in a suggestion, then surely one of them will be doable, right? Yeah, both exciting enough and within our price range enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's very exciting. We're being perceived by a fair few more people than we were originally when we started. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm tempted to make a joke about, like, that's how starting a podcast work, but I can't even be, sni like, snippy about it. I'm so proud of us. I'm so glad I get to do this crazy, wild adventure thing with you. We are nuts, canonically nuts. It's very, very fun. Oh, my God. It, weren't you just saying before we recorded that even Tyler was like, why do you do so much? You just do all of it. Oh, hey, this is actually a great moment for us to introduce our new official full-time team member. Yes, it is. We have an editor now because mm -hmm. um, we're <laughs> professionals. Tyler is our lovely editor. That means henceforth and forevermore, if you have any problems, take it up with Tyler. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> he is, oh my God, he's such a lifesaver. He is doing doing the hard work uh, as most of our listeners know i was the one editing the podcast before he joined our team and it just became uh, let me put it this way i was desperately trying not to complain and rowan could see <laughs> me white knuckling it and then took <laughs> proactive steps to help me came up with a plan put it into action and uh, i think you can hear i am a much happier tracy and Tyler is absolutely a delight to work with. He's the best. I'm so, I am so happy that he is part of our team. I think that, uh, yeah, the research levels were ramping up and it is much nicer to be able to just focus on the creative side of each episode. Mm -hmm. And y'all, listen, we have a lot of other marketing and stuff to do, but I do want to say something that I am very proud of and... Tracy and I talk about this a fair amount, but we hit episode 50, which was a big milestone for us, and we kind of took stock of a few things in the wee hours of the morning as we're wont to do. Mm -hmm. And every 
member of our creative team, every artist who is involved with our podcast, our illustrator, Jamie, our beautiful composer and musician, Taylor, and now our editor, Tyler, everyone is currently getting paid. Yes. And it's not a lot of money, but we only get to pay the people we work with because of the patrons and the people who support the podcast and rate and review and tell their mortal enemies about it. And I am just so proud to be able to compensate the artists that we work with. We talk about it all the time, about paying artists what they're worth. And it meant a lot to us that if we were going to work with artists to help us on the podcast, that we would only do it if it was fair to them. You know, exposure doesn't pay the bills. So it means a lot that this podcast is now at a place where it can support itself and others through that. Yeah, I don't know that our artists are getting paid exactly what they're worth because they are worth a oh, there million, so much billion, more than we have. Yeah. <laughs> quadruple, trillion kid money. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> But uh, it, just to all the patrons who are so kindly supporting Willie and Fable, just know that we take that money and we immediately turn around and give it to the people who work really hard to make this podcast happen. Tracy and I are just happy to be here, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I couldn't have said it better myself. So, uh, hey, hi. Uh, that other voice is the lovely, illustrious Tracy Harrison. Ooh, we're doing a little Uno reverse card. That over there is Rowan Hall. And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. And if you would like to support the podcast and the artists who make it happen, consider checking out our Patreon at patreon.com slash willingandfable. Shop our merch at willingandfable.com. You could leave us a nice rating or a review, or you can stand in the window of your home in a loose, flowing blouse and stare into the empty night air and pretend to be a ghost haunting your own home. But no matter what, we are gosh darn glad to have you here. That was so good. <laughs> I am filled with the power of getting to be you <laughs> just now. What's it like? What's it like? What's the feeling of being me like? Because for me, it's mostly um, tooth pain and anxiety. Yeah, I had to go to the dentist this morning for an emergency procedure. So I'm not thriving on this <laughs> here Monday morning. So it's, it's mostly... <laughs> I can be summed up with tooth pain and anxiety. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I have noticed that a couple of your fun introductions have involved haunting and loose-fitting clothing and an ominous breeze. Mm -hmm. And I think a normal person would ask you if you're okay. And instead, I choose to say, when are you going to invite me over for autumn plans because i can feel the fall creeping into your writing oh my god i'm normally i try to deny fall until after my birthday oh i mean i feel like that's fair my birthday is august 19th i feel like have that and then autumn begins but no 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 no, no. absolutely not this year i, I jumped <laughs> i i jumped into it already it the, the wires are getting crossed a little bit Pumpkin spice on your birthday. Yes. 
Did I ever tell you that, um, so my, my nephew's turning five in September and what he's been saying all summer is that he's turning five next season. (laughs) (laughs) So next season he'll be five. And so we've been, (laughs) we've been saying that now for a few months. That's really cute. (laughs) He'll be five next season. That's some kid logic. (laughs) Right? It's not wrong. It's not. Oh, hey, we do have another request for our kind listeners. Mm-hmm. We're kind of hoping that you guys will write us in some more listener legends. Yeah. They can be spooky stories that happened to you, a cool story that your grandpa told or your aunt told, something that happened in your hometown, a funny story about your nephew turning five next season. I love good goofy kid stories. A story about your dog. Mm, Tell us about the cryptid that lives in your basement. Mm -hmm. Tell us about your elementary school teacher who actually slept in a coffin. Like, give us the goods. Because reading Listener Legends was so fun to celebrate Mm -hmm. episode 50. And some of you write us in little messages on social media, and we really love it. So we would love to continue hearing your stories because... It just, it's just, it feels like a campfire, right? You know, like that summer camp vibe, maybe? Summer camp, yeah, summer camp vibe, campfire vibes that peek into, peek into others' lives, you know? It's the same reason we all, you know, whoever does, like, I love reading Reddit stories because I just like, you know, whether they're true or not, I just like getting a peek into the way other people think and experience things, so... If you would like to share a story with us, you can do so by emailing us at willingandfable at gmail.com or using the handy-dandy form on the contact page of our website, willingandfable.com. All right. Now that we've gotten all the niceties out of the way, we've told you that we love you dearly. Now we're going to talk about spooky season mm-hmm. it's spooky season it's official we tracy and i decided birthday be darned we are starting halloween right now and truthfully that's because you guys will be hearing this and tracy will already have had her birthday mm-hmm. oh yeah yeah by the time you guys hear it it is so beyond officially spooky season it, it, you're in the clear you're all good we start a month early because life is short and Halloween is the best holiday. Yeah, and so, if stores can put Christmas decorations in in October, then we can celebrate Halloween in August. Speaking of decorations, all I want is that 12-foot skeleton. I know. I wish I could give it to you and also a castle to put it in front of. Oh, well, you're still giving me a castle. Don't don't come in here with the I wish I could. <laughs> ooh, ooh, she's demanding. Um... I don't know. How, I don't know how much it's going to be me giving you a castle, so much as us working our butts off to earn a castle together. But sure, if you count that as giving you a castle, well, if we put a big bow on it and you make me cover my eyes, then okay. then it's kind of like giving, even if I've also paid for it. Okay, I promise that if we ever get a castle, I'll put a bow on it and make you cover your eyes and stand in front of it and then uncover your eyes. There'll be just this tiny, tiny little bow yes, right so on exactly. the front door. <laughs> know the letter of the law not the spirit of it (laughs) (laughs) okay so anyway happy spooky season today i am talking about 
Cholrophobia. The fear of clowns. Mm-hmm. And as I'm sure you have realized from that exact sentence, this story, like all our stories, contains many an adult theme, including but not limited to mentions of violence and sexual assault, and listener discretion is, as always, advised. Tracy, where do you stand on the clown front? I'm fine with them. I I have no... For all of my weird fears... Well, I don't have that many weird fears. It's mostly I just don't like bugs. I don't mind a clown. I'm fine with it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have a problem with clowns either. I get it. Like, I don't... I'm not going to judge anyone for being afraid of clowns. But it it... They're, you know... They've never bothered me. My my mom growing up, from when I was growing up, uh, was friends with a woman who was a clown. Um, so I just had pretty positive experiences. Like, she was a lovely lady. She taught me to sew when I was, like, 10 years old. <laughs> <laughs> so. My mom founded the Mime Club in her high school. That tracks. Your mom's the best. That It does track. She's so cool. Uh, and I remember her doing mime makeup on me when I was a kid. But in my head, there's two kinds of clowns. There's a Cirque du Soleil kind of clown, mm-hmm. like the artistic classic clown. And then there's the, you know, the the murder clown. Mm-hmm. Ronald McDonald plus a knife kind of thing. Yeah, totally. It, you know, that kind of vibe. All right. So. Cholrophobia, though not officially recognized by the DSM, is the widely used word for an intense fear or paranoia about clowns. The prefix cholro comes from the ancient Greek word for one who goes on stilts, which makes sense because when you hear the word clown, the average person today will think of people, often though not exclusively male, who paint their faces white exaggerate their mouths, eyes, and other features with brightly colored paints. They often wear round noses and wild wigs of similarly bright colors. Their clothing is often loose-fitting or stuffed to exaggerate the human form. They move and behave in over-the-top traditional silly ways. They tumble. Sometimes they will even walk on gosh-darn stilts. And probably you have seen one or more at a children's party. But it's 2021, and they are also heavily associated with horror and crime. We have popular media, like the Joker from Batman. As Tracy mentioned, Stephen King's It, Krusty the Clown from Mm -hmm. The Simpsons, the clown doll from that 1982 Poltergeist movie, that scared me as a kid. Uh, American Horror Story. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And... Tracy, you'll have to tell me if you remember this, but in the late summer of 2016, the news in America was filled with killer clowns prowling around the Carolinas. Do you remember all those reports? I totally remember it. I just thought it was like 2013 or 2014. I thought it was earlier than 2016. I can't promise that there weren't earlier prowly clowns. But this was a big, like for a couple weeks, they were like the thing was that there was killer clowns everywhere in backyards, and then it spiraled where people started dressing up as clowns and standing in other people's backyards. And Right. So in Greenville, South Carolina, police were called after witnesses reported a local clown that was trying to lure children into the forest. Oof. No joke. That was 
a thing that was actually reported to the police and seen by more than one person. A few weeks later in September, Greensboro, North Carolina police were called out (laughs) to search for a clown. After a normally dressed man who was wielding a machete chased a scary wig-wearing, big-shoe-running clown into the woods. my God. I choose to emphasize that because the normal machete man really seals the deal for me. Oh, totally. With more and more spooky clown sightings popping up, Greensboro police issued the statement, quote, Although it is lawful to dress as a clown, given the heightened tensions about these entertainers, Officials are discouraging copycat behavior by individuals who may find it humorous to mimic suspicious behavior. And of course, Uh we cannot forget the most famous murderous clown in America, John Wayne Gacy, one of the most notorious killers in U.S. history, was known as the killer clown. He famously said to detectives, quote, Clowns can get away with murder. I was wondering if you'd bring him up. Oh, you know I had to. Mm -hmm, You mm -hmm. know I had to. Okay, so Gacy is referencing his time as a member of the Chicago-area Jolly Joker Clown Club. This serial killer performed at children's parties and charity events as Patches, or Pogo the Clown, on his own time, out of the goodness of his heart for fun. Mm. And actually, Gacy's murders had nothing to do with clowning at all. He did not specifically dress as a clown to commit crimes. Oh, no. He was just a killer who was a clown in his spare time. So, Tracy, describe this image of John Wayne Gacy as either Pogo or Patches the Clown. I would guess Patches just because the costume is filled with Patches, but I don't, you know, maybe it was Pogo. I, first of all, cannot believe I've never seen this photo before. I, I've never looked it up. I've never looked up what the man looked like. Um, so this picture is kind of vintagey, a little desaturated. The costume, it, it's got, okay, it looks a little loved. It's tan with some patches on it. Lace around the kind of shoulders and the front, some orange poofs that look like they've seen floofier days. <laughs> right? They just look a little squished. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> His makeup is really simple and very off putting. Um, it's so off putting. So he's got a white, completely white face. You know, it looks like a bald cap or something that you can see the edges of on the side Mm. and the makeup is a pink quote-unquote mouth that starts directly under his nose goes down to his first of two chins and curves up to the top of his cheek so it is his entire bottom half of his face in a magenta colored mustache mouth And then two blue triangles around his eyes going all the way up his forehead. That's the entire makeup. Yeah, it doesn't, he didn't, he doesn't look like he accentuated his features. He just looks like he put shapes on his face. Yes. Yeah, he looks like a scarecrow with two blue triangles over his eyes and 
a huge, it looks like like a Wario or Waluigi mustache. Like if his mouth was closed, (laughs) you couldn't tell his mouth was there. It looks like he drew on a huge pink mustache. (laughs) We always put these pictures on Instagram so you two can take a look. And just so you, Tracy, and anyone else who sees this picture feels very validated about the hairs on the back of their neck standing up. Gacy was already convicted of sexually assaulting a teenage boy in 1968 when he was given access to children at these clown events. Mm, Terrible. Uh, That's terrible, and I don't like that fact. So speaking of children and clowns, this is probably going to shock you. To quote Smithsonian Magazine, The January 2013 issue of the Journal of Health Psychology published an Italian study that found that in a randomized controlled trial, the presence of a therapy clown reduces preoperative anxiety in children booked for minor surgery. Another Italian study carried out in 2008 and published in the December 2011 issue of the Natural Medicine Journal found that children hospitalized for respiratory illnesses got better faster after playing with therapeutic clowns. I'm not surprised. A well-done, well-acted-out clown as a kid? Delightful. I'm surprised, actually. And those two studies are cited all of the time. And I just... Add clown to that hospital smell? I don't think... Personally, I would be one of those kids. I think, I mean, it depends on how young they are, and obviously all kids are different, but having someone in that space be happy, be playful, be calm in a positive way. You know, I have to imagine a therapeutic clown isn't exactly the same performance of like a high energy crazy birthday. You know, I think it's obviously tailored, but I think just the idea of a positive presence that's encouraging the children to play and not feel so focused on this, the nerves and the fear, I can see that helping for sure. You know, that's a really good point. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm going to offer evidence to the contrary. Great. <laughs> <laughs> so there is another study that points to the opposite. NBC News points to a study conducted by the University of Sheffield in England in 2008, quote, Researchers asked more than 250 children, ages 4 to 16, what they thought of the idea of using clown imagery to decorate a hospital children's ward. According to Dr. Penny Curtis, who helped conduct the study, we found that clowns were universally disliked by children. Some found them quite frightening and unknowable. That also does not surprise me. A picture of a clown is very different than one that is very joyful and interacting with you and making you, like, trying to make you feel better. Pictures of clowns are, at best, just a picture of a clown, you know? That is a really good point. Tracy, have you considered going into therapeutic clowning? (laughs) I have not, um, but thank you for suggesting it, and I will take it under consideration. That and the tiny bow on our future castle. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So why are people afraid of clowns? One of the key reasons folks believe clowns are so frightening is the uncanny valley. Oh, I love the uncanny valley. It's so interesting. I love the uncanny valley. Tracy and I, we talk about it probably entirely too often. So this term was first coined by a professor from the Tokyo Institute of Technology, 
Masahiro Mori in the 1970s. The idea is that robots become more appealing to users the more human they appear, but only to a certain point. And that point is the uncanny valley. And that is where people start to feel a sense of unease or even fear at the just off strangeness of the depiction of humanity. I feel that very intensely about humanoid things. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. It's because we're trained to detect danger instantly. Mm -hmm. And when something is in the uncanny valley, and I'm sure you'll talk about it, but it's – your brain can't immediately process what it is. And so as a protection instinct, it goes to this is dangerous. I should be wary of this. And so you get this uncomfortable feeling. Yeah, that's 100% correct. And part of it is that people are trained to look for human-like faces everywhere. It's – The human brain naturally trying to interpret a situation, emotion, what we're dealing with. And that's actually one of the reasons that, uh, for example, charities that raise money for animal protection, they use animals like tigers rather than sharks. Mm. Because large cats have more human-esque faces. So we can put emotion onto them. We can transfer our feelings. It's real difficult to do that with a shark just simply because of the shape of their heads. People do it with cars, for example. Uh, You see kids play this game, but I also probably do. Um, You use the position of headlights and the front bumpers to create a face. Mm -hmm. When we look at things like ventriloquist dolls, which are similar to clowns, Mm -hmm. we go, okay, this looks human. It's closer to a human face than a tiger, Mm -hmm. but it's off. It's just unsettling. Some people will also say that the white chalky face paint of clowns makes them resemble corpses. And this causes the human body to say, avoid that. It could give you an illness. Mm -hmm. And while that's possible, and I'm certainly not an expert, I actually think that the makeup unsettles people for a different reason. So we have these massive painted-on smiles, the wide eyes, the exaggerated noses, and they are human. And they cause that feeling of not-quite-rightness. And I think that that is because very often we can see the real person's expression underneath. Mm. The Guardian says, quote, Our brains don't deal with inconsistent stimulus well. And I will get into this a little bit more, but, you know, when Tracy looked at the John Wayne Gacy clown, his clown makeup is completely ignoring the features of his face. Yeah. In traditional clowning, you are supposed to be accentuating the features your face is actually going to make. Mm-hmm. And when clowning doesn't do that, I think it really exacerbates that like you're lying to me kind of element like i don't have all the information something is trying is being hidden right now so when we combine that with the wacky posture and the movement and the adjusted body shape suddenly we have no way of getting all of the information that we normally subconsciously pick up from watching a person operate in the world 
And on top of all those unsettling cues, clowns are purposefully unpredictable. They do not conform to societal norms. They are bolder or louder or incredibly happy or incredibly sad. Sometimes they'll invade someone's personal space or they'll perform dramatic physical acts like tumbling or juggling. Very often this is part of a show, but it's not a show that has a specific set of rules. And it often requires audience participation. So that combo can cue both secondhand embarrassment and classic social anxiety. The director of talent for Ringling Brothers Circus, David Kaiser, says this about clowning, quote, I think we have all experienced wonderful clowns, but we've also all experienced clowns who, in their youth or lack of training, they don't realize it, but they go on the attack. One of the things that we stress is that you have to know how to judge and respect people's space. Mm, that's huge for sure. And he goes further to point out that clowning is really about communication of an idea, not concealing something. Mm. And I went to a conservatory college for acting, so I actually was taught by a fair few number of teachers who took traditional clowning training. Mm -hmm. And one of my very cool teachers told me, you know, they would spend a lot of time studying to find their own personal clown, inner clown, as he called it, but it was based on archetypes. Yeah. So his clown was like a sad, like clumsy, like beat up kind of clown. Mm -hmm. And it was really funny when he did it, but the features that he would draw on his face were not the exaggerated smile. It was a whole different ball game. Mm. So he would always say, you know, it's not like a mask to hide behind. It's something that you're supposed to be bringing out further. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. So let's talk about the history of clowning. Okay. Smithsonian Magazine points out that clowns have existed throughout history. Quote, Clowns as pranksters, jesters, jokers, harlequins, and mythologized tricksters have been around for ages. They appear in most cultures. Pygmy clowns made Egyptian pharaohs laugh in 2500 BCE. In ancient imperial China, a court clown named Yu Shi was, according to the lore, the only guy who could poke holes in Emperor Qin Shi Huang's plan to paint the Great Wall of China. <laughs> Hopi Native Americans had a tradition of clown-like characters who interrupted serious dance rituals with ludicrous antics. Ancient Rome's clown was a stock fool called the Stupidus. The court jesters of medieval Europe were a sanctioned way for people under the feudal thumb to laugh at the guys in charge. And well into the 18th and 19th century, the prevailing clown figure of Western Europe and Britain was the pantomime clown, who was a sort of bumbling buffoon. End quote. I really like that quote because it shows the different ways that bringing humor into those cultures helped people. Oh, for sure. And I, I love how for so long... The idea of the jester or the clown or the court fool was a really powerful position because when done right, you were really able to be the only person who could mock those in power and get away with it. Yeah, I think I think sometimes I forget that comedy 
is one of the best communicative tools we have. Mm -hmm. It's so... When done well, it seems so easy to speak the truth in comedy, but it actually requires a huge amount of skill. Yeah, one that I do not possess, so I'm always impressed oh my when God. people can do it. No, no, no. I bow down at the feet of my comedian friends. Mm -hmm. it's, it's bananas. So I just want to emphasize that clown's behavior is often based on a voracious appetite for food, for drink, for sex, for humor, for life as a whole. And if you've ever read Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, you'll know the character of Puck. Mm -hmm. And he embodies the impish nature that some of the most unpredictable and famous clowns portray. So let's talk about Joseph Grimaldi. He's considered the ancestor of the modern clown. And he's actually the reason clowns are sometimes called joeys. We could go back further into history, but this man is the closest thing we have to the clowns that so many people fear, you mm -hmm. know, wielding knives and running out of the woods. So it's a good place to start. He was so famous in his time that there is a church in East London that puts on a Sunday service in his honor. And every year since 1959, to this day, congregates have attended and they dress in full clown attire. Wow. Okay. That's so cool. I really want to go to that. <laughs> Isn't that so cool? Mm-hmm. During his time performing during the late 17th and early 1800s, about one-eighth of all people in London had seen him perform in his famous colorful costumes with his bright white face paint. He had red cheeks, and traditionally he wore a blue mohawk. And that sounds normal to us now with what we know about clowns, but before Joseph's work, clowns at the time usually only rouged their cheeks a little bit, and their costumes weren't as loud. Hmm. So, Tracy, I pulled up a picture from an advertisement for Joseph Grimaldi. It, it's very, um, so it's a drawing, obviously, from that time. It is an illustration, very colorful. Um, it is only colored with yellow, blue, red, and then a little bit of green in the background. So it is our boy Joseph standing with a wide-legged stance with a bottle in one hand and a cup in the other. And he's got a blue and red polka dot outfit on with white pants and everything is everything is white, blue, or red on him. He's got blue sleeves with red polka dots and his cheeks are have red triangles on them with red lips. And he's got a blue mohawk, but I can't, like little curls next to it. I can't quite tell what's going on <laughs> on the top of his head. And he just looks jolly and very, very squat. Like, it's a very weird shape that they put him in because his legs are long and standing wide apart. Um, but he looks very small. Uh, yeah, he kind of reminds me of Humpty Dumpty in this yeah. illustration, how that figure is often drawn. And I really like this clown makeup because... You know, he's holding booze. He's like, it's got that drunken antics kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. So his cheeks are rouged in a weird shape, but it's all, it's about the cheeks, the blushing. And his mouth is accentuated and his eyebrows are bold, but you can see his face. 
Yeah. It's a totally. it's about it's still about his face. So for all the joy that he brought to audiences when he performed, he was incredibly popular. Grimaldi famously said, I am grim all day, but I make you laugh at night. The tumbling feats in his shows left him prematurely disabled. His first wife died in childbirth. His own son, who was also a clown, died of alcoholism when he was 31. Grimaldi was prone to intense bouts of depression that became a major part of his legacy. And when he died as a broke alcoholic in 1837, Charles Dickens edited the famous man's memoirs. Wow. It was the widespread fame of this work that credits Dickens as the inventor of the scary clown. His 1836 serialized novel, The Pickwick Papers, had already described the dark life of an off-duty clown, and that was apparently based on Grimaldi's own son. Ooh. So this next work sealed the deal of this narrative. Mm -hmm. London audiences devoured this writing, and they could no longer separate the cost of the wild showbiz life and the troubled performer from the joyful, colorful show they saw on stage. A contemporary of Grimaldi, Jean-Gaspard de Bourat-Perot, was the painted clown that wowed audiences in France. And like his counterpart, he used the art of pantomime. We haven't really defined that yet, but we've addressed it a bit. It originated in Roman mime, Mm -hmm. and performers would use gestures, often accompanied by music, to express grand emotions. And those performances were much more beautiful than the balloon animal honking nose situation of a child's party. If you've ever seen a Cirque du Soleil show, the clowning that happens in those shows is is of that ilk of performance. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Smithsonian Magazine says, quote, but where Grimaldi was tragic, Deborah was sinister. Mm-hmm. In 1836, Debra killed a boy with a blow from his walking stick after the mm. youth shouted insults at him on the street. He was ultimately acquitted of the murder. Mm. So the two biggest clowns of the early modern clowning era were troubled men underneath that face paint. Ooh, I did not know about that one. I didn't either. Your reaction was exactly mine. <laughs> All right, so here is a photograph of our French murder clown. Okay. Because he actually is a murder clown. Can we talk about that? Like John Wayne Gacy, not a murder clown, a murderer and a clown. Yeah. This man. It it doesn't sound like this guy was in costume when he murdered, though. No, no, no. It's my headcanon. He was. Okay, okay, okay. So his costume is so interesting. He's basically wearing this huge oversized shirt. Which looks like uh, almost a caricature of probably the types of men's shirts of the day. It's got huge buttons down the front and big, poofy, drapey sleeves and um, wide leg pants. The picture is kind of sepia tone, black and white, so I don't know the actual colors of it, but they look white. He doesn't really have any makeup on it. It looks like he's got a pale face. He's got this, his right hand kind of up in a gesture and he's got a 
what looks like it's the start of a smile as he's talking, saying like the letter ah, like a. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, it's a, it's not a happy expression, but it is in the formative shape of a smile. It's almost like he's like raising his hand to be like what. It's very weird and. Yeah, knowing he was a killer and John Wayne Gacy was a killer really changed how I look at these clown photos. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. I'm interested in the fact that he, I don't know what is on his head, but it is essentially acting as like a bald cap. It's making him have no hair. I just thought his hair, I thought his hair was just pulled really tightly back. No, he actually has fabric wrapped around his head. You can't see it in this photo that well. So you can see kind of the edges of his hair, but he would put this fabric on his head that like huh. looks kind of like a cap that you would wear under a wig, at least in the a lot of the photos. Very weird. I just think it's so interesting because his features don't look that accentuated. No, not at all. From the stages of Britain and France, the 19th century brought a less theatrical, more broad style of clowning to the circus. And these were the moments of fun that came between death-defying acrobatics and horsemanship. So the clowns had larger, rowdier tents to entertain. Mm. This made the performances bigger and bolder and less nuanced. French literary critic Edmond de Goncourt writing in 1876, said this of circus clowns, quote, The clown's art is now rather terrifying and full of anxiety and apprehension. Their suicidal feats, their monstrous gesticulations and frenzied mimicry, reminding one of the courtyard of a lunatic asylum. Oof. Ouch, that's rough. Yeah, it's harsh. <laughs> By the late 19th century, clowns made it to America in large part because of the circus industry. And this was just in time to bring humor to the crushing weight of the economic depression. Mm, great. Emmett Kelly became the most famous hobo clown. And this was one of the famous figures with painted faces that were meant to look sad, highlighting the five o'clock shadow and the tattered clothes. Kelly's work, in opposition to Grimaldi's, was inspired by the difficulties of his own life. And rather than creating a persona that was the opposite, he kind of took it and ran. Mm. His character was a pantomime of the effect of his marriage's breakup following the United States economic downturn in 1930. And I imagine that that was very comforting for audiences to see oh absolutely during that difficult time to see it i don't know to feel validated by it yeah and there's that idea of the scamp Mm -hmm. the 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 hobo clown is so interesting as just a, a genre of clowning because it's it's truly bringing humor to the most basic elements of having to live in intense poverty and the clowns who performed those shows were they were just so brilliant like i cannot imagine living in that much poverty and having to make it funny and succeeding 
mm-hmm. with such nuance while still using such a broad art. Because the, by that point, clowning had gotten a lot broader. Right. I, don't, I just probably because I'm American and I was introduced to kind of the idea of the hobo clown much earlier. I just think that the way that it resonates is so fascinating. There's a lot of photos of that from kind of depression era and getting mm-hmm. to see it in a photograph rather than an illustration is also really moving. I want to watch videos of really cool clown stuff now. Yeah, I just I love it when the makeup shows you more about the people underneath. Mm-hmm. So as technology developed and the TV entered the scene, the more adult themes of clowning were replaced with the goal of performing solely for children's entertainment. This is now wholesome escapism. We have Clarabelle the Clown, Bozo the Clown, Howdy Doody, Ronald McDonald. These are harmless goofballs that actually set the stage for all of us to be horrified by Gacy and Stephen King's writing and all of the media that said, oh, you like wholesome clowns for kids? Murder. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's kind of a brief overview of uh, a bit of the evolution of clowning. Okay. Are you ready for a story? (laughs) Yes, I am. This is uh, not going to be what you expected. Charles was what you would call an exemplary child. At five years old, he was the picture of virtue. Happy, eager to please, smiled often, shared his toys, took a charming interest in the animal kingdom, and only threw tantrums in the privacy of the Brigham's own home. His sister, Maria, was nine years his senior, which was evidence of exactly the sort of midlife surprise the entire neighborhood believed Charles to be. He got good marks in school, though who's to say what anyone was actually marking children for at that age. And his teacher once called him a natural-born storyteller. Which was why, on the Monday before the last Monday before summer vacation, young Charles was very very eager for Bring Your Child to Work Day at his father's company. His dad had mentioned it, with a fair amount of excitement, only a week previously. He'd pointed out that Charlie would miss an entire day of school and would get to use the copy machine and, perhaps, sit in for the discussion on the latest hostile takeover. At the time, his father was known to Charlie only as Mr. Brigham. In years later, the boy would be shocked to learn that the man's first name wasn't Dad. But at the time, Charlie noted Mr. Brigham had a particular gleam in his eye when he said the last phrase, hostile takeover. It was at that moment that Charlie finally understood what it was his father did all day while he was stuck in school. The graying man put on his very official-looking clothing and went off to fight intergalactic aliens and save the Earth. The boy wasn't quite sure whether he was a commander or a mad scientist, but he was beside himself at the thought of learning how the copy machine might replicate phaser guns or clone troops to take over the UFO space station that was surely threatening the, um... What was the phrase he'd heard on television? Oh, 
The Free World and Corporate America and Something About an Iron Curtain. The thing about Charlie, that his teacher also noted in the most recent parent-teacher conference, was that he was somewhat of a fearful, anxious boy. Years of therapy in his adult life would point to the hands-off parenting style and toxic home environment created by an impending divorce as two of the contributing factors to a lifelong tendency toward worry. But at the time, Charlie was just allowed to quietly fuss and fret on his own. Which is how he spent the days leading up to bring your child to work day. The boy was eager to show himself to be an excellent future candidate for star travel, so he'd carefully picked out the most official-looking matching shirt and shorts his grandparents had given him last holiday season. And as his father drove them up to the massive glass tower where he worked, Charlie noted with giddiness and trepidation that there was more than one antenna atop the office's skyscraper. Clear evidence to the covert ops his dad was about to reveal. For the first time in his short life, Charlie felt proud of his father. And he had no idea what to do about this besides sit as quietly as he could manage. You see, on the day of this father-son field trip, Charlie was two months into a fixation on space travel and science fiction stories. All his G.I. Joes were now interstellar army men, and his comics and TV consumption had taken a dramatic shift toward the celestial. That future time in therapy would reveal that this new fixation was spurred on by a particularly bad experience at a friend's fifth birthday party. Previously, Charlie would tell anyone who would listen that he wanted to be a superhero when he grew up. In his room, there was a mountain of comics that depicted caped crusaders saving the day from a series of dramatically costumed bad guys. If anyone had warned the anxious young boy that Chuckles the Clown would be at Little Jim's birthday party, the whole ordeal might have gone over much, much better. Instead, when the speckled, rainbow-haired, giggly, sweaty, massive man bent over to hug Charlie... The young boy screamed bloody murder. The poor kid thought he was being attacked by a comic book villain. He punched the clown right in the padded nose, flailed his arms, and ran into his mother's embrace, screaming and crying for all his five years' worth of fear. It was on that day Charlie utterly abandoned superheroes and villains and any clowns that might come with such a cursed dream. But Charlie had not yet grown up, moved out, and attended therapy. So at the time of his visit to Mr. Brigham's office, what his dad called corporate, Charlie just knew he loved space adventures. His dad was clearly a space hero who beat bad guys, and he had plans to use his time at the corporate office to perfectly position himself to follow in his father's footsteps. By the time they entered the grand marble lobby of the corporation, Charlie's eyes were as big as saucers. Mr. Brigham was proudly going on about one detail or another, smiling down at his son and shepherding him through crowds of businessmen in a variety of nearly identical plaid and checked suits. The copy machine, Charlie nodded to himself with a sober understanding. 
the kids saw most of this journey from about the knees down. That is to say, he was a very short child, and anything above the height of his father's knees was distorted by the craning of Charlie's young neck. So from his point of view, every tired, graying, suited businessman looked just like a copy of any other. All was well. Charlie greeted secretaries and was given lollipops. He tried and hated his first sip of coffee. He met other executives' children, and he pressed his small hands to the photocopier's bright laser beam science scanner and was overjoyed to see perfect images of his palms spit out of a nearby slot. The little boy was capturing a picture of his face smushed against the glass when a supervillain broke into the space station. Charlie blinked, momentarily blinded by the light of the photocopier and the perpetual flickering of the overhead fluorescence, and was horrified to see his father escorting Chuckles the Clown into the small room. He knew it was a bad sign when the young woman who'd been helping him create his photos tried to slip out the door unnoticed. But the man did notice her, and Charlie watched while Chuckles leered after the girl. He knew the clown first by smell, a briny, sticky, french fry sort of gunkiness that caused the boy to wrinkle his nose when the man came forward, hoisting him up from his position where he was flopped across the massive office machine. In his panic, Charlie heard his dad call the man boss as the two began talking back and forth in adult grumbles. Then, this new clown burst out with a laugh that made Charlie's hair stand on end. It was fake. He could tell instantly that the laughter was a performance of humor, and the five-year-old was instantly taken back to that afternoon at Jim's birthday party. Today, Chuckles the Clown was dressed differently and somehow the same. Peering up at the massive man, Charlie was horrified to find that he was stuffed into a plaid suit and checkered shirt that made it seem as if he was made of pillows. He had an impossibly long, wide tie hanging from his neck, and was painted all over with a pattern that looked not unlike a rainbow that had swallowed a fish and then been rained upon. He wore no face paint, but the boss man's face was red and puffy and his eyes squinted down at his father with a smile that looked like disdain. He recognized it instantly as the sort of face his parents wore when he was in trouble, but they didn't want any of the other adults to know. And all the while, Chuckles the boss was smiling and laughing down at Charlie. He was patting Mr. Brigham on the back like they were the best of friends, and his dad was suddenly doing all the same things the clown man was doing. The big sweaty villain would smooth his tie and then Mr. Brigham would press his own. The man would laugh that awful lie of a sound and his dad would crinkle his eyes and bare his teeth and do the exact same thing. The longer their conversation went on, the less Charlie understood the words. The adults' eyes got bigger, and their mouths became redder, and the laughter seemed to bounce around the plain white room until it sounded like a grotesque cackle. 
with a horrific burst of clarity. Charles suddenly knew what corporate actually was. There was no space station and saving the world from aliens. They didn't have mad scientists who used the copy machine to build super soldiers that used phaser lasers and satellites and iron curtains to save the free world. The copy machine made all the men in suits that marched around the lobby and shook hands and wore checkers and laughed too loud. The army of corporate clowns were big, scary, sweaty chucklers who would hostile take over the world just like the clown in his superhero comics. And Charlie hadn't brought his cape to work today. I think given a hundred years, I wouldn't have thought to write a story about bring your kid to work day and a kid's loss of childhood over a stinky clown. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so good. It's such a cool way to tweak that. I know you're not into writing horror, so it was such a cool way for you to take a perspective of uh, evil clowns. Yeah. Yeah, I just love the idea of a kid thinking that copy machines just spit out evil clowns. <laughs> I love that. Oh, my God. It was so good. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think that a lot of the fear of clowns is based on, like, not understanding. And they're, in kid brain, not being that much of a difference between a clown costume and any other outfit that someone chooses to wear. Uh, yeah, I think the other big part of it, too, is unpredictability. It's people who have had bad experiences with clowns who get in their face and don't respect boundaries and think it's funny when people are crying or upset. And I think there's, you know, if if, if there are adults who are afraid of clowns, I think I would guess it stems from a combination of the uncanny valley of the makeup combined with the fear of the unpredictability of their actions. Right. And if you're a kid, invading your personal space is not simply relegated to clowns. Adults oh, just do yeah. it all the time. Mm -hmm. So last little detail. If you hate clowns, there is a place on the internet for you. IHateClowns.com has been online for 25 years. <laughs> That's older than Twitter and Facebook combined. It was created with the incredibly outdated URL members.aol.com slash IHateClown. Wow. And for some reason, that just brings me so much joy. Yeah. You can still visit the site. They have merch. Go forth. Live your I Hate Clowns life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. What a good story this week. That was amazing. Oh, thank you, Manny. All right, Tracy, what, what have you brought for us as your spooky season offering? My intro to spooky season offering to you comes from... Our mythic patron, Ray, with an additional, oh, yes, from Tharpy, another mythic patron. I asked <laughs> <laughs> our mythic patrons for their favorite urban legends, and um, there was a lot to choose from. We had really great suggestions from people, but for this week, the idea of the vanishing hitchhiker just really clicked with me. Mm. Okay. So, Rowan, do you remember hearing any vanishing hitchhiker stories when we were kids? Any 
Yeah. Rumors. Kind of. I, you know, I just remember as a kid, vanishing being a perfectly logical thing to happen to someone. Like, vanishment was on the table as an as a as a real worry. Mm. And because we grew up in a reasonably rural area, and I feel like I can't recall a single story specifically, but I just feel like someone driving out on the misty roads at night disappearing is like, oh, yeah, of course, they vanished. Mm -hmm. These stories are less about the hitchhiker, like the person driving just disappearing into forever. It's these stories tend to be the, the vanishing hitchhiker kind of archetype is. Oh, my God. Is it the girl ghost who's like, yes. I need a ride. And then they get in the car and then the person's driving yes. them and then they're gone. Yes. Oh, OK. Yes. There's that one story of the girl in white and sometimes she's crying and sometimes she's not and she doesn't talk. And then all of a sudden she disappears. Yes. That is the vanishing hitchhiker. OK. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you now. Okay. So I'm going to tell you a story first, and then we'll talk about the variations of this tale and kind of the history behind it. Ooh. But to start, we're going to do a story. I remember it like this. The night was clear. The October air was crisp and cool. Madonna was on the radio singing about feeling like a virgin, and I had just left the best first date of my life. I sped down the highway in my brand new 1985 gold Chevy Cavalier, feeling like some kind of somebody. You know that feeling when everything's just right? Like when your clothes just look good on you and your hair is perfectly feathered and you just kissed the woman of your dreams outside of a neon lit bar? Yeah, I hadn't known anything could feel so good until that night, but it did. Man, I could still smell her perfume, which was floral and sweet, and I could hear her laugh echoing through my mind. Brake lights in front of me brought me back to reality, and I realized there was some sort of accident or something up ahead. I couldn't see what was happening, but I could see a lot of traffic building up. I had no interest in sitting in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic at midnight on a Friday when I could be sitting at home with a beer instead. So I turned off at the next exit and decided to take some back roads home. I had barely ever driven these roads before, and certainly not at night, but I was reasonably confident I could find my way home through them. I mean, that's what a few drinks at a bar and a kiss from a beautiful woman will get you. Unearned confidence. I snaked my way through the winding, narrow roads filled with sharp turns and more potholes than I knew what to do with all the while keeping an eye out for any familiar landmarks or roads. That's when I noticed an unexpected flash of white up ahead. As I got closer, I realized it was a woman in a white dress standing on the side of the road. I hadn't seen any cars on the road in, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes or so, and I had a bad feeling that no one else was going to be coming this way for a while, so I pulled over and rolled down my window and asked her if she needed any help. She just asked me to take her home. And, well, how could I say no? It was nearly midnight in October in the Northeast. I don't know how long she was out there before I arrived, but it would have been really cold standing outside in my jacket. And all she had on was a long, sleeveless white dress that looked barely warm enough for a summer day. So she got into the back seat of my car and sat with her arms wrapped around herself. 
She had long, straight, dark hair, which was definitely not the norm for the 80s. I was used to seeing women walking around with large, permed-out hair and blue eyeshadow up to their eyebrows. This young woman was... simple. Just long, dark hair and that gauzy white dress. She sat in the back seat with her arms wrapped around herself as though she were cold. I could have smacked myself. Of course she was cold. I shimmied clumsily out of my oversized vintage leather jacket that was a hand-me-down for my late father, and I held it over my shoulder to her. She hesitated for a moment before I assured her that she'd probably feel better when she had it on. We were still about 15 minutes away from the address she gave me, and I didn't want her to freeze to death on the drive there. She thanked me in her soft, warbly voice. I remember that voice so clearly. It was almost like she was speaking through water. At the time, I just chalked it up to a weird trick of acoustics in my new car, and I made a mental note to look into it the next morning. I tried asking her once again if she was all right. I mean, it just didn't make sense. Why was she out in the middle of nowhere late at night if she was okay and only needed a lift home? But I also didn't want to pry, so when she gave a non-committal shrug as an answer, I accepted it. Everyone has their secrets, you know. So I switched to more innocent questions, such as what her name was, Susie. If she was from the area, she was. What kind of music she liked, Buddy Holly, classic. If she'd seen Back to the Future yet. You know, usual questions for the time. She seemed to zone out at the last question as though it didn't even make sense and she hadn't processed the words. She looked out the window and gave me directions until, finally, blessedly, we were back on a main street. I recognized a landmark. It was a radio shack on the corner. And I told her that I go to that radio shack all the time and I knew where we were and I could get her home. I still couldn't believe it took me that long to figure it out. She told me that she enjoys the soda fountain on the other corner, which was odd since there was definitely no soda fountain on the other corner. But I didn't want to embarrass her by pointing out that she probably meant a different street. I was still somewhat new to the area, having moved after college, and I didn't know at the time that the soda shop did used to be on that corner, but it closed in 1963. So I made my way down a few more streets before pulling up in front of an old Victorian-style house, one of many in this part of town. I looked in my rearview mirror to double-check that this was the right house and saw her staring wistfully out the window. I looked towards the house and noticed that a small light was on in the window, and I turned to tell her that it looked like someone was waiting for her, but... God, it gives me chills just to say this. When I turned around, she was gone. I assumed in my growing exhaustion that I had just missed her leaving the car, but I didn't see her walking up towards the house or anything. I even got out of the car and called out to her, but I couldn't see or hear her anywhere, so finally out of ideas, I just got back in the car and drove home. I crashed into bed immediately upon walking into my apartment, and it wasn't until the next morning that the realization hit me. I never got my jacket back. I drove over to the house I dropped her off at the night before, but no one answered the door when I knocked. I thought about staying until someone came home or woke up, as it was kind of early, but I didn't want to seem creepy. It was just that the jacket meant a lot to me since my father passed away, and it was the one thing I had left of him. 
I wasn't sure what to do, so I decided to kill some time over at the Radio Shack. But I walked halfway there before realizing it wouldn't even be open for another hour. Out of ideas, I decided to walk the four blocks or so over to the cemetery. If I didn't have my dad's jacket with me, I could at least feel a little bit closer to him by stopping by his grave. The thing to know about this cemetery is that when you walk in, the oldest graves are near the front. The path winds through the graves from the early 1800s all the way up until today. So I walked through the 19th century and started making my way through the 20th until I stopped dead in my tracks. There, resting on a gravestone, as though placed gently on top, was my jacket. What the hell? How did that get there? I looked around to see if maybe there was someone nearby, but there was no one. I picked up the jacket and looked on the inside collar, right there stitched on the tag were my father's initials. This was definitely my jacket. Confused, I shrugged it on and looked down at the grave, and what I saw there made my blood run cold. Susan Susie Brown, born May 2nd, 1940, died October 11th, 1958. To this day, I can't explain what happened that night. All I can promise you is that the story I told you is true to my experience. I drove that road hundreds of times over the next decade or so, and I never saw that young woman again. But every time I think of Susie, I still get a chill that runs down my spine. Oh, classic. Right? Total listener legend vibes. <laughs> I wanted to tell the, the classic vanishing hitchhiker woman in white story. Yes, that that is Halloween spooky story right there. <laughs> so what I told you today is the vanishing hitchhiker story. Like I said, it's the most popular version of the story. The story sort of exploded in popularity with the 1981 publication of Jan Harold Brunven's nonfiction book, The Vanishing Hitchhiker. Mm -hmm. In this book, Brunvan suggests that the story of the vanishing hitchhiker can be traced as far back as the 1870s and has recognizable parallels in Korea, Tsarist Russia, among Chinese Americans, Mormons, and Ozark mountaineers. Though scholars continue to debate to this day what the real origin of the story is. Some claim it to be an almost exclusively modern tale, with a few distinct categories. Where are we defining modern? Because there's also a version of this story where someone's, like, on a horse-drawn carriage. Yes. So that is a great question. The idea of the story can go back all the way, and I'll talk about this in a bit, to the Old Testament. The idea of someone appearing while you're traveling and disappearing, very old. But the version that we all think of today with motorists and a person appearing in the car is, I would say, around the 1940s hmm. when we really start seeing it. The first proper study of this story was undertaken in 1942 to 1943 by American folklorists Richard Beardsley and Rosalie Hankey, who collected as many accounts as they could and attempted to analyze them. 
The Beardsley-Hankey survey elicited 79 written accounts of encounters with vanishing hitchhikers drawn from across the United States. They found, quote, four distinctly different versions distinguishable because of obvious differences in development and essence. Those four categories are stories where the hitchhiker gives an address through which the motorist learns he has just given a lift to a ghost. Dun dun dun! <laughs> stories where the hitchhiker is an old woman who prophesizes disaster or the end of World War II. Subsequent inquiries likewise reveal her to be deceased. Dun dun dun! <laughs> stories where a girl is met at some place of entertainment, such as a dance, instead of on the road and she leaves some token, often the overcoat she borrowed from the motorist, on her grave by way of corroborating the experience and her identity. Dun-dun-dun! <laughs> Stories where the hitchhiker is later identified as a local divinity. Nope, I'm nope, not doing dun-dun-dun in that one. <laughs> if you're a divinity, you don't get a dun-dun-dun. <laughs> so those are the four that were classified by Beardsley and Hankey, but if we move forward a couple of decades to 1966, Ernest W. Bowman's Type and Motif Index of the Folktales of England and North America created a different set of classifications for this tale. Okay, real quick, I really wish someone on career day in elementary school <laughs> had pitched that kind of job right to me. You can just analyze folklores and mythology. Just what we choose to do with our... <laughs> Time now. On a hobby. <laughs> Maybe someday you can go into a school in which you have no children attending <laughs> and have no business being there. Just not even on career day. Just walk in, interrupt a class, tell them about this career choice, and then walk out. Sometimes I fantasize about a prestigious private college choosing to give us master's degrees just because we're constantly doing so much research. That would be amazing. All right. It's it's highly unlikely, but it is a dream nonetheless. <laughs> I would take it. Okay. So these classifications, the, the system grading that they do is, the classification is E332.3.3.1. So I'm not going to call it that. I'm just going to say A, B, C, D, blah, blah, blah. Okay. First one, A, is for vanishing hitchhikers who reappear on anniversaries. Okay, classic. Right. B, for vanishing hitchhikers who leave items in vehicles unless the item is in a pool of water, in which case it's C. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> D is for accounts of sinister old ladies who prophesy disasters. E contains accounts of phantoms who are apparently sufficiently solid to engage in activities such as eating or drinking during their journey. <laughs> F is for phantom parents who want to be taken to the sickbed of their dying son. G is for hitchhikers simply requesting a lift home. And H through J are a category reserved exclusively for vanishing nuns, a surprisingly common variant, some of whom foretell the future. What? What? Yep. Nuns is a common enough <laughs> variant that it gets its own section? H-I and J. <laughs> okay, sure. All right, so the version of the story we know today likely came about in popularity shortly after World War II, 
The idea of the vanishing hitchhiker goes a long way back. Sometimes it took place on a stagecoach or a carriage or even on horseback. But there are tales from all over the world about ghostly passengers hopping along for rides. Perhaps one of the first vanishing hitchhikers was the Apostle Philip in the New Testament. My bad, New Testament, not Old Testament. And it describes how an Ethiopian was driving a chariot and picks up Peter, the Apostle, who baptizes him and then disappeared. According to folklorist John Brunband, the legend of the vanishing hitchhiker evolved from earlier European stories, usually about travelers on horseback. In Hawaii, the hitchhiker became associated with the ancient volcano goddess Pele. The most common version of the legend involves a driver who stops for a strange girl on a highway, then during the course of the ride realizes his hitchhiker has disappeared. Upon arriving at the address the girl mentioned, the driver learns from her relatives that she's been dead for years. <laughs> Beardsley and Hanky discuss why so few of these tales appear in America and Europe until the 19th century. Quote, our real object to find examples of the original story, or, or at least a reasonable facsimile from which we could trace the development of our modern legend, has not been attained. On the contrary, our search convinced us that there is a modernity about these elements and the essence of the story of the vanishing hitchhiker, which sets it off sharply from the tales of the past. The most significant of the modern elements is the hitchhiker's successful masquerading as a human being. This phenomenon is extremely rare in European ghostly lore of the last few centuries. We do not say that ghosts who look like humans were absent in Europe before the 19th century, but that they were rare. The essence or point of the original story is even more foreign to European folklore. Today, many people relish telling and enjoying and listening to the story about a fellow human who, meeting a ghost of deceptively human appearances, suffers an appalling shock when he discovers that he has been in contact with a spirit. But such a tale apparently had no appeal for the inhabitants of Europe until the 19th century. It is not till the latter half of the 19th century that stories with the tone of the vanishing hitchhiker make their appearance in the collections of persons interested in psychical research. The 19th century's fascination with the afterlife and the macabre, to me, seem to, I would guess, be the cause of the vanishing hitchhiker story skyrocketing in popularity. It was the whole spiritualism era. Right, right. Spiritualism was in so many ways brought about by people losing their loved ones, their young loved ones. So imagining them still in a more human form makes total sense. Yeah. Could you imagine meeting a ghost and being shocked about it and not having your hair turn white, though? No, my hair would 100% be fully white. Yeah, because how rude. If you're going to meet a ghost, you should get the white hair out of it. Oh, I would absolutely. So your point about kind of the trauma informing the story makes a lot of sense because World War II also seemed to bring the story back into the public eye. A very famous and popular version of the story includes a prophecy. In this version, a man gives a lift to a woman when he refuses to let her pay for the fuel she offers instead to tell his fortune. She tells him that he will have a dead body in the car before he gets home and that Hitler will die within six months. Then she vanishes. On his way home, he sees an accident, and he rushes the victim to the hospital in his car, but the passenger dies before arrival. The implication being that the Hitler part of the prophecy will also come true. This story seemed to spread rapidly, largely due to wishful thinking. To me, 
The simple formula of this story means that it's highly customizable. The protagonist can easily become my friend Rowan or yes. when my uncle was in college coming home for the weekend. Similarly, the address can be anywhere. It can be an old graveyard or an abandoned house or a tree-lined road. The hitchhiker can be the daughter of any couple known to have lost a daughter to a car accident. What makes this story so interesting is how it can reflect the cultural norms and values of the time when it's told. Hitchhiking was very common throughout America until the late 1980s or so, when we started to realize that it's actually pretty dangerous to hitchhike. Right, you could pick up a ghost. Right. (laughs) (laughs) This story might be used to preach a value or moral, such as not to drink and drive, not to drive too fast, or not to let strangers into your car. Except... If you let a stranger into your car and they turn out to be a ghost who kindly returns your jacket, that's a whole different ballgame. Oh, yeah. Than like a Ted Bundy getting into the car of a murderer situation. Yeah, it's so interesting how these stories shifted. You know, 40s, 50s, 60s, it was very much the type of story that I told. But then as the stories get further into the, the 80s and 90s, it starts shifting to that classic story I think you and I heard of a girl driving and the man behind her kept flashing the headlights. And, oh, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. when she got home, a man, he, you know, was in the back seat and the guy pulled, you know, like it, it shifts to being about the fears around mm-hmm. strangers in your car. All in all, there really isn't a ton of information about the Vanishing Hitchhiker story. There's no singular place of origin, no particular time period, and not even a specific culture that it's from. It's less of a story and more of an outline onto which you can craft any sort of tale. Which is why I love urban legends so much. They're a cultural shorthand for all the things we feel as a society. Our wants and our fears are so easily translated onto these types of stories. I'm honestly surprised that you had so much information. I, The Vanishing Hitchhiker story, you could have easily just been like, hey, look, people are afraid of ghost hitchhikers. And that, like, there's so much more than I would have thought. Oh, I pulled up research articles and the, I found the original Beardsley Hankey paper from the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Um, I was doing my darndest to Eat find your something. your heart out, J-Store. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> I almost spent $20 on a paper at JSTOR for this episode and then was like, you know what? <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Buy yourself something nice, Trace. You too can have a $20 paper. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so Crystal DaCosta puts it perfectly in the Scientific American article titled, Why is American Folklore Overrun with Phantom Hitchhikers? <laughs> Stating, these stories can provide insights about social organization of the time. In addition to providing a slight chill, they are also apt teaching tools. People of all ages are more likely to pay attention if the story seems familiar, and if it's somewhat tragic or frightening. There are scary stories in many cultures reserved just for frightening children to ensure they behave. There is a lot that can be learned from folklore. Wow, you really came through with the spooky vibes. Thank you. I wanted to bring the autumnal spooky vibes. Um, ghost stories always give me chills more than anything else. So I figured I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd do my ghost story duty <laughs> and tell this tale. Ghost stories are, are truly peak, mm-hmm. peak storytelling, I think. Mm-hmm. And I don't need a ghost story to be murdery at all. Like the eeriness of just a ghost being there and not being there is 
so satisfying. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Totally agree. So you want to tell me something good? Yeah. So my something good is that I went to a local bookshop Mm -hmm. earlier this week. Um, It was over the weekend. And it's this really cool bookstore near where I live that has a beautiful front room full of lovely books and then a back room that is the library of my dreams with just floor-to-ceiling dark wood (laughs) bookshelves with ladders every so often and a section for old vintage books. And when I went in and was looking around, this man working there came up to me and asked if he could help me find stuff. And then he and I just went off and he was pulling out every favorite book he had in the entire store and showing it to me and explaining (laughs) it to me. And it was all stuff that I – almost all of it was stuff I never would have picked out for myself and I'm so excited to read it. But one that he handed to me when I said I like mythology was The Silence of the Girls by Pat Barker. Oh my god, I'm so excited to hear what you think about this book because I've read it. Yeah, you read it. Yeah. It is a retelling of the Iliad from the point of view of the women captured by Achilles. So I made a fundamental mistake with this book where I read it after I read Song of Achilles. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, I can already tell that's not the right move. And they are modern retellings. Song of Achilles is by Madeline Miller. They are modern retellings of the same story, right, of the Trojan War. And I struggled with the silence of the girls because I, coming out of Song of Achilles, I felt like it had brought so much new to the story. Mm -hmm. And then reading the silence of the girls, I felt like I'd already had it, if that makes sense. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really interested to... Hear what you think, because I read them one after another, and it was such a mistake. And I haven't read Song of Achilles yet because I'm scared. Don't be scared. Because I know how emotional it is. Don't be don't be scared. It's it's beautiful. But I would highly recommend you don't read them one after another because it's just it's too much, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I look forward to basically you having be fresh eyes that I get to yeah. enjoy. All right. I'll report back. But for now... Why don't you tell me something good? Mm, so my something good tonight is I am going over to Kaylee's mm-hmm. and a bunch of us, including editor Tyler, um, are all getting together to craft because we have to finish up our costumes for the Labyrinth of Jareth mm-hmm. masquerade ball. That's a big party that happens in L.A. every year. And none of us got to go last year for obvious reasons. And this year... They're being very responsible. You have to be vaccinated to go, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. I was just reading and, you know, masks. Most of us are doing masks like face masks instead of masquerade masks. So we're kind of jazzing them up. Right. Fun. I am going as Medusa. Oh, hell yeah. We need pictures of that for sure. I know. I'm so excited. So I have to finish building my headdress tonight. And so we're just going to all... Listen, I bought – I've been telling everyone who will listen about this because I'm so excited. I bought a hot milk glue gun. Oh, you told us on the podcast already. With variable heat. I don't care. Everybody <laughs> listen up. I bought a hot milk glue gun with variable heat and six differently sized and shaped interchangeable tips. And, oh, my God, it's like a proper tool. It's a tool. It's not just some cute little crafty – Doodad. I'm so happy for you. Now you got to get the heat gun. You got to get the warbler. You got to get the Dremel. 
I know. The problem is my mom has all of those things. And living out here, I just... Uh, I know. So. I'm excited for you. So today I get to play with snakes and spray paint and hot glue. Yay. By the time this episode is out, we you'll have already attended the event, so we'll have pictures. Oh, yeah. That's true. Time, mm-hmm. man. Time is weird. Hey, listeners, how are the pictures? How did it come out? Does she look amazing? I'm sure she does. <laughs> I'm sure she looks incredible. <laughs> <laughs> so welcome to spooky season, baby. Yes. Welcome to spooky season. We're so happy to have you. Get ready to hear me talk about pumpkin spice lattes once again. Mm-hmm. Until then, thank you so much for joining us. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch. Or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. (laughs) 